Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast for Hope City Church. We pray the word of God leaves you encouraged and hopeful today. If you have a Bible, would you open with me to Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. And it says this. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Amen. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, I thank you so much for the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I understand that there is nothing that we can do, no, no Easter egg hunt, no giveaways, no anything that can save people. But God, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God to salvation. And so God, as I preach the gospel this morning, I pray that you would save people if there are any here, God that do not yet have a saving relationship with you, I pray to God that they would hear your voice this morning and that they would see something in this gospel that causes them to worship you because you're worthy of all honor and praise and glory. And so, Lord, we do our part. We preach the gospel and we pray that you do your work of salvation. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So a lot of people uh, will ask major, major questions in life. So we all kind of ask the major existential questions, okay? Whether we do it intentionally or unintentionally, usually the thought will at some point cross our minds. We don't often, if it's uncomfortable, we don't often want to dwell there and meditate on that. But we ask questions like, why am I here? Why do I exist? What is the purpose of my life? And let me just start by saying that you exist because you were created by God. I don't know what else you've been told. I don't know what else you've heard. I I have strong guesses because I've heard a lot of stuff. um, And I've been told a lot of things that that would try to explain why I exist and what is the purpose of my life. But scripture says that you were created by God. Psalm chapter 139, starting in verse 13. Speaking to God, the psalmist says this, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance and in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Acts chapter 17 says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything from us, since he himself gives to all life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God 
in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he's actually not far from each one of us. Yes. There's a lot to unpack in those verses. I wish I had time to do it. We've got a lot of ground to cover. But the bottom line is this. You were created by God. You're not an accident. It is not fate, chance, luck, or coincidence that you are alive and breathing at this very moment. And I like to always say this, like you may have been a surprise to your parents, but you weren't a surprise to God. Because this says he, he knew you before he even formed you. He knew you before he formed you. You were in God's mind and heart before he even formed you. And he is the one who formed you, intricately weaved you together in your mother's womb. That's what the scripture just told us. So, You were created by God. And he created you in his own image and likeness. He created you because he wanted to create you, because he wanted you. In fact, he handcrafted every detail. When you look at these verses and dive into them and what they're saying, it's saying your race and skin color and hair and body type and every other feature about you was handcrafted by God. He even determined when you would be born. You ever heard somebody say, I used to kind of say this sometimes, like, oh, man, I was born in the wrong generation. You know, I should have been been a hippie, you know? (laughs) No, I wasn't. I was born exactly when God determined I should be born. You exist for such a time as this, is what the scripture says. So he determined when you would be born. He determined the boundary of your dwellings. You may not think so. You may think you just choose, and you do. We choose to go here and there. It's because God has allowed that we're going to go that far. That's where the boundaries of our dwellings, that's what Acts 17 just said. He determined all of that. And he determined the length of your days. He says, every day was known to you, God, before I even lived one of them. No detail was left to chance. So whatever else you've been told, you exist and are alive and breathing today and have purpose because God created you. Why did he create you? I'm going to give you three things real quick. This is what I do. I do points, and this is why we have like two-hour sermons. I'm not going to do that to you today, okay? But let me give you three, three things. Why did God create you? You were created by God, number one, for a relationship with God. Why, am I, why do I exist? Why am I here? Why did you create me, God? What's the purpose of my life? Well, you were created, number one, for a relationship with God. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 in the Message Bible says this. Long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind listen to this, had settled on us as the focus of his love to be made whole and holy by his love. God created you to love you. You were created for a relationship, a loving relationship with God. Number two, he created you for his own pleasure. Revelation chapter four, verse 11 says, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you have created all things And for your pleasure, they are and were created. God made you to enjoy you and to enjoy a relationship with you. You See, we often think of God as this like like angry Gandalf in the sky, right? Like just, just waiting to like bring the hammer of judgment. Like we don't often think of God as just enjoying us. Just enjoy, every parent understands what it's like to enjoy their child. To take so much pleasure in your child that your heart is just overwhelmed with joy and pleasure. Like what a gift. 
God created you to enjoy you, to enjoy that relationship. You were created for his pleasure, for, for, to love you and to enjoy you. That's why he created you. And part of our major purpose in life is to live a life that would please him, that would bring him joy and would bring him pleasure. Third, he created you for his glory. He created you for his glory. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7. God speaking says, bring all who claim me as their God, for I have made them for my glory. It was I who created them. Why do I exist? Why do you exist? We exist to glorify God. We exist to make so much of him and to show others, to help others see how absolutely brilliant and magnificent he is. Everything we think and say and do should shine a light on the glory of God. I love uh, this thing called the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and it's asked the question, it says, what is the chief end of man? What is the primary goal of man's life? And the answer is this, that, that they put it in this catechism. They said, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's a pretty good summary, I think. Why do you exist? Why do I exist? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So you were created by God and for God. You were created to enjoy a loving personal relationship with him for his pleasure and his glory. But we have a problem. We are all fallen. We are all fallen people. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. And verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So these verses just told us that nobody, nobody, nobody in here is righteous. You know what the word righteous means? In right relationship with God. So we were created for a right relationship with God. And then it says, but no one is in right relationship with God. The way that we were created to be. Why? For all have sinned and fallen short of glorifying God. Fallen short of the glory of God. Listen, uh, this really strikes the heart of like uh, judgmental Pharisee type religious Folks that love to kind of stand on their pedestal and feel like, oh, thank you, Lord, that I'm good, but, you know, thank you that I'm not a sinner like this person. No, we're all jacked up. That's what the Bible just said. Every one of us. Every one of us is jacked up. We may be jacked up in different ways, right? The major problems in the world, we look at some, what's the major problems? War and the way we treat people and human trafficking and violence and, and whatever. Whatever you think, the major, those are not actually the primary problems in the world. Those are symptoms of the primary problem. All of our sin, the primary problem is that all of us have sinned and we have a sinful nature. We are corrupted to the core is what scripture says. The Bible is the only holy book honest enough to look at us and say, no, you're jacked up. You're a mess, and you can't do it. You can try and try, and that's called like religion. You just try and try and try to be good and do better, and, and then you fall short. It's behavior modification. Oh, I want to dust myself off. I'm going to really try really hard this time, and I'm really going to get it, and now I'm not going to sin anymore. Guess what? 20 seconds later, oops, okay, here we go. Like, you can't do it. If you and I were given a million second chances, we'd blow them all. The, I mean, the Bible just looks us square in the face and tells us that. It says we are... It says if we, have, if we say that we have no sin, we're liars and the truth is not in us. That's 1 John. 
So as you try to act like holier than thou and pretend that you, you're above this, so no, it doesn't work because you're a liar and the truth's not in you. Every one of us knows it too. I know, I know it. I know me. I know me better than you know me. And I mean, okay, he's up here, he's playing, he's preaching. Like, I'm jacked up too. We're all a mess, right? Everybody who knows me knows it. Ask my wife. She'll give you a list, okay? So here's what I want to do, because we're diving into a really tough section right now, talking about how we're all fallen from the glory of God, okay? But, but stay with me through this section. We're going to get through it. It goes to something else, but we have to stay in it for a second, the good news, the word gospel means good news. So the good news is very, 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 very good, okay? But it's going to hurt us before it heals us. What's, like, uh, I love that line in The Wizard of Oz, right? It's like, I could be wrong, but I think it might get darker before it gets lighter. That's the section we're in right now, okay? And the reason this is important to do is because sometimes we don't care about the love, mercy, and grace of God until we understand why we need it so bad. God loves you. Yeah, yeah, great. We just, we just throw that information out. We assume it. We, oh, yeah, of course God loves me because God is love and God is great. And he just feels good towards everybody. And there's no problem for me. Of course God loves me. And we actually don't value the love and mercy and grace of God the way that we should because we don't understand why we so desperately need it. And it's, it's because of this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so none of us are in a right relationship with him the way that we were created to be. We have to diagnose the problem correctly. Otherwise, we're going to keep putting Band-Aids on a terminal illness. We have to get to the root of what's happening with us spiritually. And the problem is this. God is perfectly righteous and holy and just, and we are not. We are unrighteous. Every one of us. So congratulations. We're all in the same boat. And there are devastating consequences for our sins. It's going to get darker before it gets lighter. It will get lighter, but it's going to get darker first. Here are the devastating consequences the scripture tells us for our sin. Number one, death. Death. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, For the wages, the price, the payment of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the price that we have to pay for sin is death. Now, death came into the world because of sin. That's what scripture teaches us. We were actually created to enjoy him forever. And now we experience, I think, death in two, two ways. Physical death. Physical death, we all die. The stats on this are absolutely alarming. Doctors say that 10 out of 10 people die. <laughs> 10 out of 10. We're not getting out of here alive. Okay? That's it. So all of us are going to experience this. Every one of us We'll have a day when we draw our final breath and then God, face to face with our creator, holy, righteous, omnipotent, eternal, face to face with him. Every one of us will. And we don't know when that day is. I could drive out of here today. and I'm not trying to scare anybody, but let's talk about this. I could drive out of here today. I assume 60, 70, 80, 90, maybe if I'm lucky, you know, how many years am I going to live? I remember when I turned 25, I freaked out. 30 wasn't bad for me. 25 freaked me out because I thought, if I live to be 100, I'm a quarter of the way done. Like, freaked me out. Not to depress you. I know it's a depressed. Okay. So my whole thing was like, okay, but it happens. It happens. So just because we're young and healthy, let's not assume, let's not assume that we're any farther from this moment than, than the next person. You go, oh, it's morbid. It's morbid to think about death. I think it's foolish not to. One of the most helpful things I ever did, somebody, I heard somebody say, best thing you can do is write your own obituary. Just sit down and write it. And you go, that's morbid. 
yeah, it kind of feels morbid at first. But then as you're writing it, you go, you realize, I wasn't, I didn't write anything on there about, about accomplishments or achievements or crowns or trophies. I didn't write anything on there about that. I wrote about the kind of person I wanted to be. The kind of impact and love I wanted to share with the world. The kind of relationship I wanted to have with God and with my family and with the world. It's the kind of stuff I wrote about. The Psalms would say, teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So you go, it's morbid to think about death. I say thinking about the fact that we're all going to die since it's actually going to happen to all of us teaches us how to live. We were made to live forever, but now we face physical death. And I think we face a second death, a spiritual death, which is the next point. Number two, consequence of sin is separation from God. Separation from God. Isaiah chapter 59, verse two. But your iniquities, that is sins, transgressions, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Ephesians chapter four, verse 18. Speaking of those who are not in relationship with God, it says they are darkened in their understanding. And look at this, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of of their hearts. Because of sin, Scripture says we are separated, alienated, excluded from the life of God. Could, could anything be more horrible than this? The scariest thing is not that we're going to die, because that's going to happen to all of us. The scariest thing is that we might die spiritually and be separated from God. Every one of us will face physical death. That's a reality. Not all of us have to experience spiritual death and separation from God. You don't have to. You do not have to. But it says that some will be separated from the life of God. I can't think of anything more horrible than being separated from the one who created me to love me for eternity. Third consequence of sin. We're still on the dark part. In case you can't tell. The wrath of God. The wrath of God. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God. We go, hang on a second. I like soft hippie Jesus. I like kumbaya Jesus. Loves everything and everyone. Never get, oh, it's okay. It's not a problem. Sweep it under the rug. I like that Jesus. The problem is that's not biblical Jesus. God is love. God is love and his wrath. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. So we can't separate those two. God is love. It's not like he's loving on some days and wrathful on others. God is always love. And yet some will experience the wrath of God. John chapter three, verse 36 says this. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Put those verses on a coffee mug. Put, put those on your calendar. Like we put the really chipper ones. Don't we? Like, imagine this is on the calendar. Oh, it's November. The wrath of God abides on him. Yay. We don't like to talk about those verses, but they're there. And we don't do ourselves any favors by ignoring them. Okay? It's not just that God wants to save us from sin and from the penalty of sin and from death and hell. Those are true. 
He wants to save us from all of those things. It's, it's that we're also saved from the wrath of God himself that is righteously, he is right, he is just to pour out his wrath against sin. We're saved when we are saved, not just from sin and death and hell, but saved from the wrath of God. Fourth consequence of sin, and ultimately, is hell. Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I, I know this is not fun to talk about because it's not fun to preach, but it's important. And you go, come on, let's just talk about the stuff that Jesus talked about. Well, Jesus talked about hell more than any other person in the Bible. Jesus talked about the reality of hell more than any other person in the Bible. So these are all the devastating consequences for sin, and all of us have sinned. So here we are, created for a relationship with God, but now we're lost and corrupted with sin and unrighteousness, separated from God, condemned under the wrath of God, and headed for eternal destruction and there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. Have a good week, guys. We'll see you. No, I'm just like, what if, I, what if we were left there? What if that was the end? If we can do nothing to save ourselves, and we can't, then we are entirely dependent upon God to do something to save us, aren't we? I can't do it. Listen, we try to do it. In fact, I think every other religion is an attempt to earn our way to God. We're trying to earn it. If I just do better, if my good deeds just outweigh my bad deeds, if I just try hard and attain enlightenment, if I just climb the ladder, do the steps, work the program, we're trying to earn our way back to God, but Scripture says you can't. You can't do it. The bill's too much for you. You don't have enough in your wallet to pay the price. Nothing you can do to save yourself. So we are entirely dependent upon God to do something to save us. And praise God, he has. I want to talk about what Jesus has done. Now, I hope having set the black backdrop of our bleak spiritual condition. What I want to do now is I want to show you the diamond of the good news. Have you ever noticed how they do that? You go to look at jewelry, they set the diamond against a black backdrop because it pops more. And if I put it against something bright, it's not going to stand out as much. But when we understand how dark things are for us, then all of a sudden the diamond of the gospel shines more brilliantly to us. We appreciate it more. If we minimize sin, we actually minimize grace. When we understand how dark it is, then all of a sudden that diamond is brilliant. It's brilliant. I want to show you the diamond. What has Jesus done for us? Let me point out four things. Number one, he came to us. He came to us. John chapter 1 verse 14, speaking of Jesus, says, And the word became flesh. He took on human flesh and he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the Father. Look at this, full of grace and Truth. 
Jesus left the glories of heaven and came to us in human flesh and blood. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. Not that Jesus was born, but that Jesus took on human flesh. It's called the incarnation. He left his throne in heaven and he took on human flesh. And that's why Matthew 1 says, she shall bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. He came to us. We can't earn our way to him. We can, nothing we can do can ever get to him. The stairs aren't high enough. There's not enough in the wall. We can't earn our way back, but he came to us. No other religion can say this. We go, oh, they're all basically the same. That's crap. I'm sorry. I'm sorry if I offended you if you're upset, but that, I don't know what else to say about it. It's crap. Right. They're not all basically the same. They're fundamentally different. Every other religion is what you must do. And what you can do if you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and try hard enough, you can earn it. The Bible says, nope, no you can't. How's that trying working for you? I'm coming to you. I'm coming to you because you can't make it to me. And I want you. Christianity shows us what God did to come to us to draw us to himself. Number two, what did Jesus do? He lived a perfect, sinless life. Hebrews chapter four, verse 15, for we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted just as we are, yet without sin. Think about that. Jesus has experienced, because he took on human flesh, he's experienced every temptation. He knows what temptation feels like. It says he's able to sympathize with us. We don't have, we don't serve a God who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. Think about that. Think about the fact that God himself took on human flesh and, and experienced temptation and because of that sympathizes with our weaknesses. Man, here's the difference. He was tempted in all points just like us, but where we failed, he succeeded. Tempted in all points, yet without sin. I can't live a perfectly sinless life on my own. I've tried. I don't know. If you figured it out, tell me how it's working for you. But he did it. He lived a life that we couldn't live. Perfectly sinless, perfectly obedient to the Father, perfectly righteous. Number three, what did he do? So he came to us. He, he lived a perfect sinless life, obtaining a perfect righteousness. Number three, he died for our sins. Don't gloss this over. You may have heard this a million times, but don't gloss this over. Jesus Christ died for our sins, for our sins. Isaiah chapter 53, verses five and six. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace with God was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity, the sin of us all. My sin and your sin was placed upon Jesus on the cross and he was pierced for our transgressions. That's what the scripture says. So now probably the most famous verse in all of the Bible, John chapter three, verse 16, and I'm gonna read verse 17 with it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. How great is that news after the black backdrop that we just painted? He did not send his son into the world to condemn the world because we were condemned already, the next verse says. We're already condemned under sin. He didn't send Jesus to condemn us under sin. We were already condemned. He says he sent his son to save us. So he died for our sins. And don't, don't mistake this. He died in our place as our substitute. Our sin poured out on him. It was a vicarious death that atoned for our sin. His blood was shed, scripture says, for the forgiveness and removal of your sin. And so God promised he would punish sin. He would pour out his wrath against sin. And he had. He poured it out on Jesus. And Jesus, by taking that, made atonement for our sins. Jesus willingly laid down his life. And why would he do that? Why would he do that for me? For you? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. Why did Jesus endure that? Because we're separated from God by our sin, and so he paid the price for our sin to bring us back to God. We look at the cross and we look at the darkness. We look at the hardship. I remember when the Passion of the Christ came out and people were like, oh, it's so bloody and gruesome. It's like, it's the crucifixion. We look at it, we mock it, we make fun of it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or we go, it's just too much. I can't look at it. Yeah, of course, we get it. It's gruesome. I talk to lots of people who don't believe this and it's like the cross, the crucifixion is something to mock. It's, it's something to look at and go, oh, that's hideous. That's gross. I don't want to look at that. I don't want to talk about that. Makes me think of a story I heard one time. It's like a, a mom who had a teenage daughter and the mother's hands were horribly disfigured and uh, her daughter would be like, when she became a teenager, you know, her daughter's friends would all make fun of her mom. What's wrong with your mom's hands? They're gross. They're gnarly. I saw her without her gloves on. And, Ew, what's up with that? And the daughter would join in. Yeah, I don't know. It grosses me out too. Like the daughter didn't know what the problem was. It's gruesome. It's, ugh, hide that. One day the mom says, let me explain to you how my hands got like this. You were a baby. I woke up and our house was engulfed in flames. And you were upstairs. And I ran upstairs through the fire. And I grabbed you out of your crib. And I saved your life. Because I love you. I risked my own life. And in the process, my hands were very badly burned. And over time, they've shriveled up to what you see now, and they're grossly disfigured. But I love you, and I would do it again. And the daughter just starts weeping. And she says, Mom, don't ever hide your hands again. Those are the most beautiful hands I've ever seen. When she understood why, 
Those hands became the most beautiful things you've ever seen. So we can look at the cross and say, that's gruesome and gross and hide it from me. I don't want to talk about it. We can mock it and make fun of the cross, and that's great. But when you have a revelation of why the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ becomes the most breathtakingly beautiful, sacrificial act of love we've ever seen. Jesus endured that to bring you through, out of death and the wrath of God and judgment back into right relationship with the God who created you to enjoy you and love you for eternity. That's why the cross. That's why his blood was shed. He came to us. He lived a perfectly sinless life, the life we couldn't live. He died the death we couldn't die, paying the price for sin on the cross. Jesus now, dead and buried. But it doesn't end there. And that's why we're here today. If Jesus just died and stayed dead, oops, what are we doing here? Number four, he rose from the dead. He rose from the grave. Luke chapter 24, verses one through seven. This is after the crucifixion. Jesus is dead and buried. This is, but on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb and they took the spices they had prepared and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men, we know them from other gospels as angels, stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them this, I love this. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? He says, remember, he told you this was going to happen. He was going to be delivered over and crucified and buried, but on the third day rise again. Here it is, the third day. Why are you looking for him among the dead? Because he's alive. Everybody agrees. Everybody in ancient history agrees that the tomb was empty. They, they, come to, they, they make up different theories about why it was empty, but Jews and Romans and Christians all agree that tomb was empty. The stone was rolled away and the body was gone. Why are we still talking about Jesus more than 2,000 years later? If this is just a blip on the radar in history, if this is just like, oh, you know how many people were crucified on a Roman cross? You know how many people who claim to be God were crucified on a Roman cross? Do you have any idea? So many, how, there's people all over today claiming to be God. Why aren't we talking about them? Why aren't we gathering on Sunday and talking about Bob? Bob's God, right? Bob, Bob said he's God, he's God. Why aren't we talking about him? Why aren't we talking about any of the tons of, probably hundreds, maybe thousands of people who claim to be God who were crucified on a Roman cross 2,000 plus years ago? You know how many people that happened to? Why are we talking about this man? Because this is the only one that got up out of the grave. 
It's easy to say I'm God. It's hard to come back from the dead. If you saw me on Friday and I was like, hey, I'm going to die and, uh, and I'm going uh, to rise again, right? And then you saw me killed. You saw me executed by some modern fact. Somebody puts a gun to my hand. And you watched it and I'm dead. And then you were at my funeral and you saw them lower me into the ground. And oh, everybody's crying and weeping. And there you go. And then Sunday you saw me at Starbucks. <laughs> Might get your attention. It might cause you to radically transform your life as we see happen for the early disciples. Peter, afraid to, afraid to acknowledge Jesus in front of a little girl on Friday. And just after the resurrection, he goes, I've I seen Jesus alive from the dead. And now he's preaching the gospel, even though it might mean his head, and it eventually did. And he got crucified upside down, refused to deny that he had seen Jesus Christ. You're going to have to kill me. I'm sorry, because I've seen it. They're like, deny it. Just deny it and you'll live. I'm sorry. You have to crucify me. But can you crucify me upside down? Because I don't deserve to die in the same manner as my Lord. Yeah. What transforms a life like that? Paul the Apostle, who wrote chunks of the New Testament, used to be a guy named Saul who persecuted the church. Think of Osama bin Laden. Thought it was his duty from God to kill and imprison Christians. I remember looking at a college textbook when I was a youth pastor. One of my students brought me a college textbook that, 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 that showed Saul of Tarsus on one page and Paul the Apostle on the other page. And there was a little note at the bottom of the page. And it says, these two are the same guy. We're not really sure what happened. <laughs> That's my paraphrase of what it says. Basically, you know, Saul of Tarsus and Paul the Apostle, they're the same guy. We're not sure what happened. We know what happened. Acts chapter 9. He's on his way to imprison and persecute and kill more Christians. And guess what happened? Jesus Christ appears to him after he knew he was dead. When you see somebody alive from the dead, that'll change you. Yeah. And so Jesus didn't just come out of the grave. He came out of the grave and appeared to hundreds of people. If you, it's, it's hundreds. There's a list. There's a list here. We're going to read it in just a minute. But there's a list of people that he appeared to. If you interviewed every eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ for just 15 minutes each and you went around the clock without bathroom breaks. It would take you from breakfast on Monday until dinner on Friday to hear them all. 139 hours of eyewitness testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You tell me a court today that that wouldn't hold. Right. He's alive. He got up out of that tomb. And he's promised to return. He says, now all who call upon the name of the Lord in faith will be saved. That's the gospel. Paul put it this way, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. Now I want to remind you, brothers, the gospel I preach to you, the gospel that you receive, the gospel in which you stand and by which you're being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of primary first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Just like the scriptures predicted, he says, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared, he lists all these appearances. He appeared to Cephas, which is Peter. Then he appeared to the 12. 
Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born. This is Paul speaking. He appeared to me. That's why I stopped killing Christians and became one. He says, I saw him. And hundreds of other people saw him. And I'm telling you, this is not secondhand information. He says, this is eyewitness testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. And it demands a response. So how should we respond to the gospel of Jesus? I'm going to finish with this. Jesus actually tells us how to respond. Because Jesus himself preached the good news and called people to respond. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea because they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Three things, and we're going to close with this. Repent, number one, repent. How do we respond to this good news? You don't have to. I'm not going to beg you to follow Jesus. I'm not going to try to pretty him up so that he looks, looks appealing enough for you. To, he's, he's worth it. He's worth it. He says, repent. What does repent mean? It means change your mind, change your heart, change direction. Turn from your sin and turn towards Jesus. I taught my kids how to repent. I said, I said imagine that wall is sin and you're walking towards it. And I say repent. And, and when I say that, you just about face and you run in my, remember this? My boy's here, right? You run in my direction and you jump up in my arms. Turn from sin and trust in Jesus. So we repent. Number two, he says, believe. Repent and believe. This is more than just intellectual agreement. Most people, most Christians would say, I believe. I believe. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. Listen, I'm going to just be raw and honest with you. Okay, I know our time is already whatever, but I'm going to just be raw and real, okay? I would be on my fourth joint and my seventh beer and just finished a bar brawl. Uh, uh, this is actual scenario. Okay, sorry, mom. <laughs> All right? And, and you asked me, do you believe in Jesus? I just said, of course. <laughs> you don't? Like, what are you, an idiot? That's what I would have said. Like, of course. Now, I have a little, little bit more tact nowadays, right? But I believed. I believed. I believed that Jesus is the Son of God, that he lived a sinless life, that he died for my sins, that he rose again. I believed all of that. When the scripture says believe, it doesn't just mean mentally agree to a set of bullet points. I believe all of those things. To believe means to trust in, to adhere to, to rely on. It's trusting in Jesus with your life. There's a guy that was riding a bike across a tightrope on a tightrope across Niagara Falls. A bike with a basket in front. He's riding it across this tightrope across the Niagara Falls. A crowd gathers. It's a big show. 
He does it over and over and over and over and over again. And this crowd's like, whoa, cheering him on. And he goes, how do you believe I can do it again? And every hand, yay. And he goes, okay, get in the basket. Who's willing to get in the basket? Every hand goes down. Then maybe you don't really believe I can do it again. You see the difference between soft belief and true belief? When the scripture says believe, it's saying, do you just believe, like check the box? Yeah, I, I agree with that idea. Or are you willing to bet your life on it? And you can't do that. There has to be a work of the Holy Spirit inside of you to just give you the faith to believe and trust in Jesus with your very life. Believe that there's nothing you can do to save yourself, but that he came to you and lived a sinless life and died in your place on the cross, paying the price for your sin and rose from the grave and has made a way for you to be reconciled, brought back to the God who created you. Number three, so we repent, we believe, and number three, we follow Jesus. He said, follow me. It's not enough to just believe. We have to actually believe so much that we follow him. Or let me put it this way. Those who truly believe in him will follow him. That doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. I screw up all the time with that. I'm not inviting you to do that this morning. That's how most people treat Jesus if they call themselves Christians. A lot of people do that. I'm actually inviting you to lay down your life and follow him because he's worth it. If you lose everything else to gain a saving relationship with Jesus, you made a good deal. I'm talking about radically reorienting reorienting your life around Jesus and following him. Christians are not those who just believe in Jesus. Demons believe. That's what the scripture says. You never thought about that? Demons don't struggle to believe that Jesus is who he said he was. They know it. They believe it. Demons believe. That's Bible. That's what the Bible says. This is even demons believe. Will you follow me? Will you follow me? Christians are not those who just believe in Jesus. They are those who follow Jesus. And so if you don't have a saving relationship with Jesus, the Lord is calling you this morning to repent of sin, believe in him, and follow him. Let me close with Romans chapter 10. Starting in verse 9, we're going to read through verse 13. And I pray that even now, God would just be stirring your spirit to respond. Don't do it out of emotion. I've seen so many people make emotional, oh yeah, I'm going to follow Jesus, and it's, and it's not true. I don't know. Just because you raise your hand and pray, there's no magic in that. It's the Holy Spirit doing something in your heart. We'll find out years from now if we're actually following Jesus or not. We'll find out. We'll see if it produces fruit in our life. If we're still following after things get hard, after it's, it's, we're slandered for being Christians, after we lose friends for being Christians. We'll find out. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. You might be shamed now. You might be ridiculed now. But on that day, Eternity before you, no regrets. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. It says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord 
will be saved. And so here's the call. Will you stand with me real quick? Bow your head and close your eyes for me. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I don't want you to make any decision out of emotion. But if you sense that the Holy Spirit is stirring something in your guts this morning, God has shown up and met you here, and you're, you're tired of, maybe you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, or maybe you have, and you walked away from that, and you believe, you're checking the belief box, but you're not actually following him. And this morning, you go, you know what? No, today's that moment. I'm, stop gonna, I'm gonna stop being a name tag Christian. I'm gonna follow Jesus, and no, I'm not gonna be perfect, but he's gonna help me. And I, every time I fall, I'm gonna repent, and I'm gonna seek forgiveness, and I'm going to get back up and dust myself off and follow him, and he's going to empower me. Slowly but surely, day by day, moment by moment, making me more like Jesus. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you have sensed the Holy Spirit stirring you this morning to do something, even if you can't say, I don't know what this is, this is the Holy Spirit, there's something inside of me that's compelling me to respond. Will you call on him today? Will you make a decision to repent and believe and follow Jesus? If you're making that decision this morning, let me just see your hand real quick. Thank you. What guts, what guts and what courage. Praise God, Lord, make it so. Anybody else here? Anybody else here? 